Hello, once again, thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science. It's episode 305. And coming up on this program, we're going to be looking at something that's broken overnight in the news, our time, about unidentified aerial phenomena. For the first time in 50 years, they're holding a congressional hearing into these objects that have been observed. And Fred and I have talked about them before. Fascinating stuff. We're also going to uh, look at almost literally Sagittarius A. They've finally got an image of the black hole at the centre of our uh, solar system. Well, God, we don't want it there. The centre of our (laughs) galaxy. (laughs) And growing plants in lunar soil, it has happened. We'll also be answering questions about dark matter, the future of astronomy and star populations. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me, as he always does, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. How are you doing, Andrew? Good to see you. Uh, you too. Uh, we were kind of in the same vicinity on the weekend. Did you get to Coonabarabran? No, I didn't. Oh, well, we <laughs> so weren't we in weren't. the same vicinity then. <laughs> no, what happened, only... what happened was the, uh, the event that I was coming to Coonabarabran for was cancelled because of an outbreak of COVID. So I didn't Of course. <laughs> Always the way. Well, yeah. I was only 40 kilometres down the road at a little village called yeah. Turawina. Friends of ours were staying in the caravan park there, so we went up to see them and spent the weekend there. What a lovely, sleepy little town it is. We went, had a bit of a fundraiser on at the pub that night, so we went along there and uh, we thrashed our wives at a few games of, uh, of pool and got the most amazing image of the moon through, um, through the clouds as it rose on Saturday night. and. Just, it looks like a painting. I don't know how it worked out that way. I took that with my iPhone. It looks extraordinary. I've put it on uh, the Space Nuts Facebook page if anyone wants to have a look at it. Uh, Yeah, just one of those photos that turned out well without any planning whatsoever. Okay, Fred, let us get to business. And this is news that's been breaking overnight, which uh, we've talked about before. These, they used to call them UFOs. They're now called Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. And they have reported over 400 of these in recent times. And we're talking as recently as, as 2021. And most of these have been seen by naval personnel flying off the coast of the United States. And it's led to this congressional hearing, the first of its kind in half a century, according to the reports I've read. And the, the people involved have been asked fairly straight questions by the panel about what these things are. And it's uh, got a lot of people scratching their heads still. Exactly. And yes, you're right. We've talked about this before. Last June, almost a year ago, the uh, basically the Pentagon, in fact, it was from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, they released a preliminary assessment on unidentified aerial phenomena, which was quite interesting read. And you and I spoke about this at the time. There were 144 reports, many of which came from service personnel, as you said, Navy pilots typically, about unidentified objects, often seen moving at great speed, doing things that, you know, in terms of their manoeuvrability, that most airframes wouldn't be able to stand because the the G-forces will be too high. The interesting news is that 
of the 144 reports that were in that preliminary assessment, one has been identified, One, which was apparently a large deflating balloon, in quotes. That's what the, the conclusion was. But the other 143 of them remain a mystery. And, you know, what's telling about this? And this is really why it's, it's kind of come from the, the world of hearsay into something a lot more well-documented. At least 80 of those 144 incidents were detected by multiple sensors, often infrared cameras and things of that sort. So that has that gave that you know preliminary report some weight, but since then the number has grown. It's now something like 400 yeah. reported incidents. So that's a phenomenal increase. Does it mean that these things are more common? Not necessarily. It might be that people now feel a lot more confident about reporting these things. You know, you can imagine mm. if you're a Navy pilot and you tell your mates, well, I saw a UFO, they're going to laugh you out of court. But now there is some credibility for much improved credibility for these sightings. We've got a, a much larger number. The reports are said to be frequent and continuing and often occur in military training areas or other designated airspace. It is fascinating. And as one of the chair or the actual chairman of this House Intelligence Subcommittee, Andre Carson, has said that he, he is concerned because he sees them as a potential national security threat and they needed to be they need to be treated that way. The people who are answering the questions or were overnight our time uh, was the Under Secretary for Defence for Intelligence and Security Ronald Moultrie and Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence Scott Bray? They were quite frank. They they didn't shirk the questions, mm-hmm. but they were very clear in saying that we don't know. We don't know what this is. We don't know why it's happening. And they were asked direct questions about whether or not they've attempted to communicate with these things, and the answer was no. They were asked direct questions about whether or not there has been any wreckage from downed craft found, and the answer was no. Uh, but the bottom line is that they are seeing these things, they're doing extraordinary uh, manoeuvring far beyond the capabilities of any known aircraft, and they just don't have answers. Yeah. But they've gone public, which I think is pretty darn extraordinary in itself. Yes, that's right. It's, it is. It's an extraordinary thing to do. And, you know, I guess it it uh, complies with the modern view of transparency about these things mm. because we used to live in a much more secretive world than we do now. Now the internet is there. Everybody can find out. I'm interested, Andrew, did you watch the um, video of the some of the hearings? I haven't had time to do that. I've, I've seen... Probably five minutes of okay. of yeah. uh, one of the hearings where these questions were asked and they they were uh, they were answered. But when you don't know the answer, that's pretty easy, I suppose. But <laughs> yes, it does sort of throw up. And look, they didn't offer any explanation as to what these things could have been. Uh, and you and I have discussed it before. And of course, a lot of the conspiracy theorists will automatically go to uh, extraterrestrials yes. as as the probable cause, but it's more likely domestic. That's my opinion, and that's yep. just the way I think. It's probably some kind of advancement in aeronautics that somebody's developed, and they're out there playing silly buggers. And <laughs> and you know somebody knows something, and whether or not they're manned or they're remote control more likely remote control. It's it's hard to answer, but 
I think we can write off optical illusions, seeing they've been detected by machinery. Yeah, by, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so it comes down to uh, only a couple of possibilities, really. Well, you know, another one is the um, some clever hacking of the of the sensors or something of that sort from outside. That's a poss- Yes, <clears throat> that's a possibility. Yeah, I think um, you know, for anybody who's interested in following this up, thoroughly recommend reading that preliminary assessment that came out last year. It's pretty easy to find. Pre- pre- preliminary assessment UAP, and if you want the full details, it's. 2021-0625, that was the date when it was um, when it was actually released, 25th of June 2021. So it's yeah. available on the web. It's worth a look. Yeah, I think there'll be more to come on this. Yeah. I- but whether or not we ever get an answer, I don't know. If it's if it's stealth technology, well, it's not because we can see it. It's technology, <laughs> advanced aeronautical technology that somebody's playing with. Yeah. They probably don't want many people to know but why would you pick a restricted naval yes, exactly. air region to get out maybe maybe you're trying to um, stir things up i don't know but i'm sure many people will have a lot of theories some that we haven't even thought of mm. but it, it is uh, yeah the fact that they've got a congressional hearing going on about it certainly takes it into a whole new sphere yeah it does <clears throat> mm. yeah. all right watch this space now, Fred, uh, let's talk about uh, one of the most exciting pieces of news in astronomy to date, and, and I know that's a big call, but <laughs> we did not so long ago talk about the image of a black hole that was was created, and we talked about the fact that they were trying to get an image of Sagittarius A, the black hole at the centre of our Milky Way galaxy, and they have finally done it. Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, it's a lot. It's been a long story. This because the observations for this, Andrew, were made back in April two thousand and seventeen, and you're right. We did talk about it because the first image that was released, which was in two thousand and nineteen, believe it or not, that's wow, three years ago. I think it was October. I can't remember. Anyway, that first image was of the basically the shadow of the event horizon in the M87 galaxy, which is 55 million years, so 55 million light years away. And surprised astronomers, actually, when that press, because there was a lot of media hype, and I think I sat in on the press release just as I did last week for the, um, for the, for the Sagittarius A star black hole. But the M87 black hole surprised everybody because it's much further away. We all thought much easier to image the nearest supermassive black hole, the one at the middle of our galaxy. Uh, it's a pretty hefty thing, 4.1 million solar masses. But it turns out that with 6.5 billion solar masses, the M87 black hole was actually easier to image. So all the number crunching that was took place between 2017 and 2019 actually delivered an image that looked exactly like a cream donut. That's all right, we can put up with that. And what you're seeing there is the you know, the material swirling around the black hole, releasing radio waves, but um, essentially avoiding the what you might call the shadow of the event horizon because what it is is this is radiation that's that's bent by the, the supreme gravity of the black hole but doesn't quite make it back into the black hole. So it shines out like this beam with a hollow centre. And mm. that's what we saw back in 2017, sorry, 2019, and I guess everybody's been waiting for 
the release of data from the centre of our galaxy because we knew that um, our galactic centre, Black Hole, Sagittarius A star, was on their observing list. So we knew that they'd made observations of it. But the, the collaboration has kept things pretty close to their chests. And it was so there was a, an announcement, it's about a month ago, saying there's going to be a big press release from the Event Horizon Telescope about something in the Milky Way galaxy. Well, that can only be one thing. So it was in some ways the world's worst kept secret. Just to run through the statistics, um, yes, it's 27,000 light years away or thereabouts, the centre of our own galaxy. It is also swirling material around it, the black hole at 4.1 million times the solar mass, but in a much more gentle way than what's happening with M87, because M87 is what's called an active galaxy, where the black hole is gobbling up a lot of stuff. Ours is much more modest in its appetite. And so what it doesn't have yet, or at least haven't been observed yet, is these jets of material that are swept out of the black hole's poles because of the magnetic forces that are involved with that. So we haven't seen that, but there's a suspicion that they might be there. Uh, There is also a suspicion that this black hole, its poles are pointing towards us, which might make it harder to detect the jets. That was one of the solutions that comes out of the, the number crunching that's been done for the black hole. So very exciting news. Good to see it. Yes, it still looks like a an orange cream donut, that's fine. That's yes. what they look like. <laughs> well, I, I hear they're already working on getting another image. They're, they're pretty keen to keep working on this, so it's not like that's the end of the story. Uh, we we may well learn more. It's a pretty great achievement, though, yeah. getting a, an image of something that is very difficult to see because of the um, the dirtiness of our galaxy. Yes, that's right. Dust, you know, the dust between ourselves and the galactic centre certainly switches off any visible light observations. You can penetrate in infrared, and that's how we knew the black hole was there because there are stars that were detected in the infrared waveband which are clearly orbiting around something very massive. That's proved the black hole. It produced two Nobel Prizes a couple of years ago. What comes next, though, is really interesting, Andrew, because so just to explain, the Event Horizon Telescope is actually a consortium of eight observatories, or it was when these observations were made, all on the side one side of the Earth. So Australia is not part of it because our telescopes are on the wrong side of the planet. But they're all linked together in a really interesting way because they, you know, you need very precise observation timings and things of that sort. But that consortium has now been joined by other radio observatories, which increases its power. And what is next on the agenda is to make movies of what's going on in our galactic centre. So we might see these blobs of energetic material swirling around the event horizon, which they do actually very rapidly at the black hole in the middle of our galaxy. It's a matter of minutes that it takes them to go around once. Whereas in M87, it's a matter of, I think it's days actually, rather than minutes because wow. it's such a massive black hole. So there is more yeah. to come. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we may even see more stuff this year. Will the James Webb Space Telescope uh, be able to, because it's infrared, will it be able to do any imaging of the Sagittarius A star? Yes, I, I I mean, what it will image is the objects around it. There may be, there are occasionally infrared bursts of radiation from the galactic centre that the James Webb might well be able to pick up. So I think generally, so these wave observations were made at a wavelength of 1.3 millimetres. That's well into the millimetre radio waveband. Now, James Webb is infrared, which is much, much shorter than that. Mm -hmm. But 
I think at the long wavelength end, it will see things coming from the galactic center. So yes, we might well see new results. Fascinating. All right. Incredible news. And it's something we will be uh, keeping an eye on because I'm, I'm sure there'll be more to learn from Sagittarius A star. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Roger, you're alive, sir, here also. Space Nuts. Now, are you into vegetables? I know a lot of people aren't, particularly children, and there are certain types of vegetables that people really hate, such as broccoli or broccoli, if you're American. Or, or, Bri- or British. Or British? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Those sorts of things. I think they've got their own sort of name as a, as a group. I can't think. Mustard greens or something? I, I'm not sure. But the reason I mention that is because there's been a study released by NASA Uh, Well, they funded it through the University of Florida to grow plants in soil from the moon, and it looks like they've been successful, Fred. Yes, that's right. Indeed. It's not broccoli or broccoli, but uh, a a seed of a plant that's related to those mustard greens that you were were mentioning, including cauliflower, one of my favourites, I have to say. I do like it. I love it baked with cheese yeah, yeah, on top. Go. Irri- that's the way to do Irresistible. it. Irresistible, yeah. And I like it raw too. Anyway, that's another story. So this is a plant, and I'm going to screw this up completely, I'm sure, because I'm not a biologist. Ara- Arabidopsis thaliana. How's that? That I would have said it the same oh, way. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> it might be thaliana. Sometimes you harden the T in TH. Anyway. Yep. Rabidopsis is the plant related to mustard greens, and the seeds have been planted into lunar soil, which came back. Actually, I'm not sure which of the missions this particular sample came from. It may even be a several of them. I think, in fact, I saw a picture of this last week with little, you know, little samples of soil in different pots in a in a laboratory into which these seeds have been planted. So we believe it's from Apollos 11, 12, and 17. They also, the researchers, as you said, from the University of Florida, also used had a control sample. This is always the way you do things in science, if you can. You, you have an experiment and a control sample where you think you know what's going on. And the control sample was what's called a lunar simulant, something that is not lunar soil, but is very similar to lunar soil. And that was in, you know, the seeds that the control sample, control samples were planted in. So the result was that they started sprouting in both samples, both the control and the lunar soil samples. These seeds sprouted within just a few days of planting. The director of the University of Florida's Interdisciplinary Center for Biotechnical Research is Professor Annalisa, it's Paul or maybe Powell, uh, I'm not sure where that name comes from, but Professor Powell or Professor Paul, she said, we planted them, walked away for a couple of days, and then when we first went back to take a look, it was amazing to see that every plant group, every plant group, all the seedlings germinated. and that's amazing result you know and it tells us something about biology can do in alien soil <laughs> which may be something that's quite useful the result however a big however yes however. i'm going to throw in a however yes put in uh, however. if 
if the moon exists because of an impact with by another planet or planetoid way back when, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, we shouldn't. And, you know, that ties in with the fact that the lunar rocks are very, very similar to terrestrial rocks. And but what's different is the way those rocks erode on Earth. It's, um, you know, it's the weathering and tectonic activity that erode the rocks. On the moon, it's just the radiation of the sun and the bombardment of subatomic particles and micrometeorites. And that's actually why lunar soil is so difficult, uh, sorry, so different from earthly soil and also so difficult to handle. It is fine and powdery. And as Professor Powell said, it sticks to everything. <laughs> so, and, and that t- ties in with what the lunar, you know, the lunar explorers said. It, it, yes, um, in indeed. fact, one of the, I can't remember which one I wrote, a, I wrote about this gentleman in, uh, in Space Warp. One of the lunar astronauts returning from the moon actually had terrible hay fever on the way back because of the fineness true? the fineness of the dust that was that was brought into the lunar module on their spacesuits it just sort of covered everything in the lunar module and that was the first ever recorded case of lunar hay fever isn't that amazing it is amazing uh, yeah. buzz aldrin described it as walking on slippery talcum powder yeah yeah i can can well imagine uh, you know, it's just probably the erosion processes that have led to that fineness, even though the, the raw material is is actually similar to what we what we have on Earth. So the the bottom line with the experiment is that, in fact, the the ones that sprouted in the lunar simulant soil were more robust than the ones that were in the real lunar soil. So it says. So, Article I read says some of the plants grown in the lunar soil samples had stunted roots and leaves, as well as some reddish pigmentation. And of course, every, okay. everybody wants to know what that is. So it's now, I think, after 20 days, these plants were harvested and prepared for further study for things like the RNA in them, ribonucleic acid. Is that correct for that? I think the expressed genes patterns um, apparently sort of told the researchers that yes you know it's typical typical genetic response to ha- to a harsh environment these are the ones that have been found already and they're, yeah. they're talking about harsh environments on earth you know like when the soil is has been eroded and uh, and some of the nutrients have been carried away by water or something of that sort anyway um so another in fact one of the other researchers robert fell his quotation from, from this press release is, now that we have lunar soil that has been, contact with bio, been in contact with biology, we can begin to ask the question, how would you and how hard would it be to mitigate any of the adverse reactions that we saw? In other words, how can you make things grow better in lunar soil? Yeah. So great question. Well, I, I, suppose, I suppose you find out what's missing that's causing the stunted growth and the, uh, the discoloration and you add it to the soil, yeah. which is what we do on Earth. Yeah, throw in the superphosphates. Right. Yes, that might be the way to go. But it, it sort of prompts a thought in my mind that if and when we do put colonies on the moon, may let's assume they build domes or something to live under, will they maybe be able to grow vegetables in the directly into the soil maybe so um, yeah yep hopefully it will be just visiting settlements rather than colonies but you never know i think we're gonna have i think you're right we're gonna have a permanent presence on the moon 
you know, within a few years' time. And that will be yeah, very exciting. Won't be long. <laughs> mm, it will be. I'm, I'm surprised they didn't try potatoes. We know you can grow them, grow them on Mars. We do, yes, we know that. <laughs> seen it in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> we have seen. And, and, and he added materials that were yes, lacking yes, in the Martian right. soil too. He did. He did. he did. he did, which he found somewhere else. I think you and I have spoken about some studies that have shown potatoes could grow in Martian soil because of the analyses yeah. that have been done from, you know, from some of the uh, lunar rovers. It hasn't been done yet, but no doubt it will one day. Yes. Uh, you know, cauliflower may be a thing of the future on, on, on the, the moon. moon. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I love uh, cheese sauce on my cauliflower, <laughs> so that's all covered because the moon is made of cheese. Apparently, it's all, apparently yes. It's all going to work. <laughs> But it's a, yeah, it's a great study. What what an exciting thing to discover that the, the soil actually works. Yeah. You can grow things in it. It's really interesting stuff. This is Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Time for our question and answer segment where you ask us questions and we say, I don't know. <laughs> That's how it goes, isn't it, Fred? More or less, yeah. There's a little bit more to that. Usually I don't. We actually do a lot of talking before we say I don't And then we follow it with, but I'll make it up anyway. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All right, let's go to our first uh, question from Mike. Hi, my name's Mike. I live on Vancouver Island in Canada. Um, Love the show. I had a question about, I guess it would be Black Matter and... Dark energy, I guess. Um, there's a well of gravity where there's something with mass. What if there was an uplifting gravity in the lack of mass? Would that maybe make sense for those problems, like the Voyager slowing down outside of the solar system and and uh universe the the galaxies spinning faster than they should be and maybe even the the voids in between the galaxies making the filaments of uh, an upheaval of gravity pushing things away maybe that's why we can't see dark matter and dark energy because we can only see gravity by its masses interacting with it anyhow that was just a thought love your show Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mike. Yes, all right. Some interesting theories, and and I think we talked about this before we started, but uh, it's good that people are thinking about this kind of stuff because that's how we learn. That's how we sort of start investigating and finding out what's what. Yes, so it is a great question. And I guess we should clarify that what we're talking about is not dark energy, which permeates the whole universe and is the force that's whatever it is that's driving the accelerated expansion of the universe. What we're talking about is the effect of dark matter because Mike specifically mentioned gravitational wells, the, you know, the, idea, the idea that space-time has these, these wells in it which are caused by matter and that's what we feel is gravity. And it's a really good picture to have in your mind when you think about these things. So I suppose what he's imagining is, is sort of other wells that point upwards in space-time. So, you know, you've got negative gravity. But nothing that we've ever seen or investigated has led us to that idea of, of a negative gravity. 
so dark negative matter, I suppose you'd call it, rather than dark matter. And I think given what we do know about dark matter, because we can detect it exactly as, as Mike said, the fact that galaxies are rotating too quickly for gr- the gravity of what you can see in them to hold them together. So there mm. must be something else. That has been well mapped by, you know, observations made of distant galaxies and nearby ones, including gravitational lenses, which really allow you to to map the distribution of dark matter well. And when you do that, you would, if there was something going the other way, if there was some sort of anti-gravity taking place, you'd see it. You would see its effects. But that has not been has not been discovered. So I think we're still left with the problem of dark matter being some some sort of hidden material which only interacts with normal matter through its gravity. Maybe interacts with subatomic other subatomic particles in a very on very rare occasions, and people are looking for those possible interactions. You might get gamma rays coming from collisions between dark matter and, and normal matter, but that's still a work in progress. And a, and a final postscript to, to Mike's Mike's question. I think when he mentioned Voyager, he, he may have been referring to Pioneer. I think it was Pioneer Ten, which for many years seemed to be leaving its expected uh, trajectory, which threw into question our model of gravity. But that was resolved, it's probably two or three years ago now, by more careful thermal modelling of the spacecraft. And it turned out that there was, I think, a, a panel on the spacecraft that was hotter than had been previously expected, and the thermal radiation was actually providing a thrust to the spacecraft, which over time was pushing it off its trajectory. Isn't that amazing? Just something as simple as that yeah, can yeah. throw things off course. You know, when, you, when you've got something that's so far away and been, been going for so long, that's right. Yeah. Maybe that's the answer to diverting asteroids and comets. We, we oh, put something on to heat them it, up on one side. It, and it is. It's one of, the, one of the things that's been thought of, exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, I thought I... I think, the, I think oh. what you do is you paint one side of it white so the other side you know, releases more heat and the white side doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding or is that real? Um, no, I've seen it mentioned. Yeah, you know. Okay. Don't know how you deal with That's the a rotating asteroid, but never mind. Hell of a lot of pain. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although uh, it gives uh, graffiti artists a oh, job. absolutely, yes. That's a place for them, mm. yeah. Yeah. All right, Mike, thank you. Let's move on to a question from Kabir, who's in India. Hi, I'm Kabir. You are listener from India. I'm here for an advice. I completed my bachelor's degree in physics. So now I'm looking forward for my post-graduation. So I'm a little bit confused. Uh, should I go for pure physics or astronomy? I'm actually interested in astronomy. So I would like to know the future of astronomy doing post-graduation solely in astronomy. My parents are pressuring me to go for pure physics. But I would like to do specialization in astronomy. Yeah, you understand. So um, I would like to know the future of astronomy. That's my question. Okay. Thank you, Kabir. And thanks for putting us under the pump because your parents want you to do one thing and you're thinking of doing another. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, we're under some pressure now, Fred. Yeah, that's right. So he's done a bachelor's degree in physics. And now he's got to decide whether or not to do his exactly. post 
bachelor's studies, yeah. uh, studies, postgraduate studies in physics or astronomy. Yeah. His heart says astronomy, his parents say <laughs> physics. <laughs> and it's a great question. And first of all, many congratulations. And what, and what, is, what is the future of, of, astronomy. Uh, of astronomy? Yeah. And yes, definitely, congratulations. Well done. Yeah, that's, it, that's some pretty heavy-duty thinking. It's a big achievement to, to get a degree in physics. <laughs> yes. Um, as I remember from scraping through mine a long time ago, but it's a good question to ask as well. And it's actually a question I face myself because I did change from when I went to uni as an undergraduate, I changed from astronomy to physics because I got sort of caught up with the idea that astronomy was all about keeping me happy because I was interested in astronomy, whereas physics might be a route to be a more productive member of the community. You know, I might discover things in physics that would be useful to the, the world at large and actually find it easier to get a job. <laughs> so I did so my degrees, actually, in, in fact, it's a combined degree in mathematics and physics, but that's what happened. I did go to uni to study astronomy. And on reflection, you know, I got back to astronomy anyway, <laughs> because that's where my heart lay. And I, you know, spent my whole life as a working astronomer with a strong, actually, strong bias to physics um, and engineering too, because I quite a bit of, of engineering in my early career. I worked for a firm that built large telescopes. So, so I did develop skills which are marketable. I, I mean, I think that's the the bottom line. And you might think intuitively, and maybe your parents imagine this, that a physics degree. Gives you would get a, for example a physics PhD would give you more job opportunities than an astrophysics PhD, but that is not necessarily true, because there are certainly you know opportunities in astrophysics and astronomy which will continue. So the future of astronomy is bright. It's always a tough gig to get into because there are typically more people who want to do it than there are certainly permanent jobs i um you know i still think though that if you do do a for example a doctorate or a masters in astronomy or astrophysics you are not locking yourself out of a future career in another area still on track if you want to become an astronomer you can you know and, and you the required standards then you will be it will happen but even if that doesn't work out for you there are other opportunities because astrophysics is basically physics you you know it's just physics on a big scale and the computational techniques that are used in astronomy very marketable in the financial world you'll be amazed how many people who do a phd in astrophysics or astronomy and decide that they want to change they don't want to be academics for the rest of their lives they're going to either industry or finance and they do very well so it's not necessarily a make or break decision. And my advice is always follow your heart. <laughs> I yeah. told my own kids that. Most of them ignored it, but I did tell them that, you know, I would support them if they, one of my daughters wanted to do archaeology. And I said, yep, I'll go for it. That's fantastic because she was really interesting, interested in it. In the end, she chickened out and did software engineering. But now, now she's very wealthy, but that's fine. <laughs> so maybe that's right to ignore my advice one other comment if i may andrew before i let you get a word in edgeways on this sorry that's all right is um have a look at the um 
website of the Astronomical Society of India, because that's the Society of Professional Astronomers and other professionals from related disciplines. It, it, it's now 50 years old, founded in 1972. A very well-known Indian astronomer, Vainu Bapu, as the founding president. And I don't know what their membership is now. It was a 1,000 a few years ago. It's probably well in advance of that. There, there is, they're a very active society. There are radio observatories and optical observatories in India there's a lot to look at. So, yeah, have a, have a look at their website and, yeah, check it out, Kabir. Yeah, and, and good luck to you. And after all that, if uh, your parents want to get in touch with Fred and <laughs> tell him what they really think, I'll give you his address. <laughs> That's all right. But, no, look, I was always told find something you love and turn yeah. it into a career. If, and yeah. I'd always loved radio and I still do and I, I did it for, I've been doing it, I still do it for, what is it now, coming up on 40 years. And, you know, I had some good jobs and I had some bad jobs, but overall I did what I loved and that that's, and I got paid for it. Yeah. So that's really what you should strive for, I suppose, and your heart seems to be going towards astronomy. And, look, I think the future of astronomy is unlimited, yeah. especially when we get into space exploration. They will need astronomers out there. They will need not need them on the moon soon. You might need to, yep. you might need to consider that. There's just so many possibilities. Quite so. But yeah, and, and look, our, reg our regards to your parents, Kabir, and thanks, yes. thanks for the question. Now, our final question this week comes from Jerry. Hello, Space Nuts. This is Jerry from Kamloops, BC. Love the show. I had a question about star populations. The oldest stars are population three, and the newest stars are population one. Seems a bit backwards to me, and I was wondering what will happen next. Will the population one stars die with the end of the universe? Will it go into negative numbers? Would love an answer. Thanks, guys. Uh, by the way, Andrew... If you want people to believe that you're a bad golfer, you shouldn't show your golfing trophies on the podcast. Also, are those hole-in-one trophies I see? Awesome work. Um, I'd love to hear the stories about those, too. Keep up the work. Great work, guys. Later. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Oh, yeah, they're over my shoulder. You can see them in the background there on my, uh, on my little trophy case. All the ones up the top are cricket. <laughs> I don't know. I got, yeah, I've got three holes in one. The first one was a two iron from 180 metres, 200 yards. It just landed slightly short of the green, rolled up over the shoulder of the bunker and went down the hole like a rabbit. <laughs> My second hole in one was a nine iron from 125 metres, which went over the pin and sucked back into the hole. And my third one was a slam dunk, went in on the full. And, uh, yeah, so I've, I've been lucky enough to have three holes in one's in my career and that one there the cup that's my one and only championship i've been runner up three times but I, I finally cracked one so that's my one and only championship so yeah i used to be better i'm not so great at the moment but yeah i used to be a pretty decent golfer i still hit the ball all right but consistency has let me down in recent times jerry so and that's because i just don't play as much as i used to so maybe maybe soon when i play a bit more things will change we'll have to wait and see but i think age will have an impact in there as well tend to slow down when you get a bit older <coughs> anyway enough about enough about that silly stuff let's <laughs> let's answer his question about star populations I, f I find this interesting you might want to sort of expand on what he's getting at before you answer it 
Um, it's golf, isn't it? That's what it's all about. Yes, yes. <laughs> Lots of stars in golf, yeah. and I'm not one of them. So, yeah, it's a good, great question, and good to be reminded about this stuff. So, population, po- idea of star populations, goes back to the great astronomer Walter Bada, who started off in Hamburg, I think, and moved to to the United States before the Second World War and became one of that country's leading astronomers. And during the Los Angeles blackout during wartime, he was able to use the Mount Wilson telescope free of any light pollution. That's the 100-inch. It was then the biggest telescope in the world. To take photographs of the Milky Way, particularly the the centre region of our galaxy and and the galaxy generally. And what he identified, and and he he did spectroscopy as well, so he looked at the the spectral makeup of the light and was able to identify different elements uh, that are present in these stars. He identified these two populations. Population one, which is stars typically like the sun, which live in the disk of our galaxy and relatively rich in you know, the what we call metals. Metals are anything other than hydrogen and helium. So, you know, the normal elements, iron, magnesium, uh, sodium, all of those things very much, very present in, or very obvious in, in stars like the sun. But then he found this other population of stars, called which he called population two, which are much less, you know, which have far fewer of these elements present in their, in their spectrum, in their light. And he interpreted this, well, the modern interpretation of this is that those stars are so old that they were formed in a time before the interstellar medium was enriched by these heavier elements from supernova explosions and previous generations of stars. So the more what we call metal poor, the ones that have got fewer of these non-helium and hydrogen elements, uh, they are the ones that we think are the oldest. They also sit in the galactic centre. They sit in the halo of our galaxy as well. So it was an extension of that, I guess, probably during the 60s, 70s, maybe even a bit later, that led to the idea of a population three, which are stars that are so old, they are the first stars that appeared in our galaxy when after the formation of the galaxy, after the formation of the universe, in fact, 13.8 billion years ago. So the population three stars are the oldest. We haven't found any yet. We found some really metal-poor population two stars, and some of the colleagues I worked with on the RAVE project a few years ago, they were very interested in those really highly metal-poor stars, ones that have virtually got nothing other than a little bit of iron in them as well as the helium and hydrogen. But population two would just be helium and hydrogen, and sorry, population three, and they haven't yet been found. So I think Jerry's question was what happens to them all? You know, all of these stars will die out one day. The oldest ones, probably the ones that will be the first to die out because they're so old, whereas stars like the sun, sun will be going for another five billion years. I suppose a, a massive, or a actually red dwarf stars, which are fairly evolved, that's to say they are like population one. They are going to be the longest lived. They typically have lifetimes in excess of 20 billion years, 30 billion years, something wow. like that. That's incredible. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. A, long, a long answer to a short question. <laughs> yeah, what was the answer again? Yes, um, the answer was yes. <laughs> yes, all right. So we have not found population three at all. We just have a theory as to what they would be. Does that Could that 
mean that they've already died off? Uh, it's possible, yes. Um, you know, that they're the ones that typically probably Population 2 stars, the massive ones would have died off within a few million years. You know, they're long, long gone. But it's the, the, the more modest ones, very metal-poor dwarf stars, which may be the ones that the first Population 3 stars that are discovered because they're long-lasting. Small stars last all right. the time. And it's just possible, Andrew, that the, the James Webb Space Telescope will be the first instrument to detect a Population 3 star. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, it would. Yeah, I'm sure. It's one of the reasons yeah, why I, I'm built. really excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. I, I think we're going to uh, have this explosion of new yeah, information in the coming years. I, I really do. It's uh, fascinating. And just popped into my head, what is the shortest lived? type of star well very massive ones they you know they they basically live fast die young they they burn their energy very rapidly get to the end of their lives and there's a collapse which uh, in in the most massive stars causes a supernova and they they would be population population one stars yeah yeah and so they're called population one two three because of the sequence of discovery there right? it's more was just harder, just life cycle. Yeah, I suppose actually, yes, that's a good way of putting it. We knew more about population one stars from from the earliest days of astrophysics, the ones that are like the sun, um, and a few yeah. of the others were found then, but nobody really knew what they were. And it was Bader himself who categorised them: populations one, two, and then population three followed, based on what we know about stellar evolution, the way stars evolve. Yeah, there you are. All right. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Kabir. Thanks, Mike, for sending in your questions. We'll, um, yes, we wish you all well and, and Kabir with your career choices. Uh, yeah, lots of luck and, and look forward to hearing from you in the future. Maybe you'll discover something. The Kabir Watson Comet, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Yep. Now, just a reminder, if you have questions for us, you can send them to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. There are a couple of options. You can click on the AMA tab at the top, or you can click on the send us your voice message on the right-hand side. I've made a weird discovery that with this interface we use, I can play MP3 files, but I can't play WAV files. So I'm going to have to do some converting. We've finally figured that out. It's only taken a couple of years. <laughs> Also, while you're on our website and you want to look into supporting us in a financial way, you can become a patron, which is easy as um, uh, just clicking on the Support Space Nuts button. You can visit the shop while you're there, catch up on all the latest astronomical news through Astronomy Daily. And I want to send a special shout out to the group that has formed on Discord. Discord's not something I'm overly familiar with, but one of the users who refers to himself as Mighty Spaceman, has taken it upon himself to create a Space Nuts community on Discord. And so they, like the Facebook uh, group, um, chat with each other about uh, astronomy and space science. So a special hello to our supporters on Discord. Thanks for getting behind us. And thank you, Fred, for uh, all that you do and helping us out every week with Space Nuts, with all the uh, information and and answers to questions and career advice, you name it. Thank you very much. Yeah, the only thing we don't do is relationships, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yeah. All right, Fred, thanks so much. We'll catch you next Sounds week. Sounds great. Thanks, Andrew.
Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And, of course, we say hello and thank you to uh, Hugh back in the office who pushes all the buttons and rings all the bells and orders the donuts. He's the only one there, so he eats them all. From me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks so much for your company. We'll catch you on the very next edition of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.